Comedy has always been about punching up. It's a power struggle game, comedy. It's about taking your world back and reorganizing it so that you are not a powerless person in it. That's what is so fun about it, is it's a real reorganization of stuff that bothers you. You've defined the narrative, and once you define the narrative, you're not the victim of it anymore. You've changed what any, how anyone sees it. So that's how great is that? Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest, Meryl Marco, is an Emmy Award-winning television writer and celebrated humorist. She's worked on shows ranging from Sex and the City to Moonlighting, but is probably best known for her association with The David Letterman Show, where she was the head writer from the show's inception in 1981 until the late 1980s. She's also the author of nine books, most recently a graphic memoir called We Saw Scenery, The Early Diaries of Meryl Marco. In this book, she draws from an enormous cache of diaries she kept from approximately the fourth grade through her first year of college. By turns hilarious and heartbreaking, the book has her older self looking back bemusedly and often cringingly at her younger self and wondering about the nature of memory and why our brains store some experiences in accessible places and hide others away where they're easily forgotten. In this conversation, Meryl talks about the book, about growing up female and funny, about harnessing that funniness into a career, and about working with and being the longtime girlfriend of David Letterman. She also talks about what it's like to pursue comedy in this era of heightened sensitivities and the myth that you're not allowed to be funny anymore. So here's my interview with Meryl Marco. Meryl Marco, welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Welcome to you as well. Thank you. I know it's... Uh early morning out there in Malibu. So this, I can imagine the sun, the sun coming up or something. Or something. Yeah. If there's still sun. So uh, congratulations on your book. We saw scenery, the early diaries of Meryl Marco. <laughs> Thank you. Whoever knew that those early diaries were going to turn into anything. Well, and also this is a graphic novel that you have written and illustrated. Tracing yeah. your girlhood and adolescence is it beginning in about sixth grade through your arrival at college? It actually starts at the end of fourth grade. Okay. <laughs> and you use your old diaries as a sort of map, right? So right. tell us about the diaries. Like, where were they all these years? Did you know they were there? Like, what was the dis discovery? Well, I was saving them. I save everything I think I can possibly ever make use of as a writer in the future. So I have a lot of weird stuff. The diaries not being the weirdest of them. I have, uh, you know, I save a lot of just weird magazine articles and photos and just anything that makes me laugh, actually, I save. Like I have, you know, who's who and meat cutting and stuff like that. So uh -huh. with no idea what I'm going to ever do with it, just the phrase who's who and meat cutting makes me laugh. And so I save it. So anyway, I have... Uh, Periodically, I have to trim these boxes of stuff down because, you know, I have, I'm supposed to have a life as well. So I found these diaries again and hadn't actually read them in a long time. I just wasn't going to throw them away. So I thought, well, I should re sit down and read them as though they're a piece of literature and just see what they are. And there were a couple things that hit me right off the bat when I started doing that. One, I remembered only some of it 
the sum of it that I remembered, I remembered pretty vividly, but only in patches, like a photo of it, kind of. Right. Sort of remembered it. I didn't remember a lot of it. And also the amount that I wasn't the person who wrote those diaries. So, I mean, now I'm not. Obviously, I'm a lot older, but also the just the whole orientation to everything was I thinking, who was this person? Was this my mom? Was it me imitating my friends? And mm-hmm. so I started trying to analyze the whole thing. And then I started wanting to see what it looked like because I had a snapshot in my head, but I didn't actually have a video. Nobody was taking videos at that point. So I started doing drawings thinking, well, this might be a funny comic strip written by like a 10-year-old. And soon I had a giant pile of these things. And friends of mine started telling me, well, you should make a book out of it. And then I started thinking, it's too random to be a book. It's just some kid's random stuff. So then I had to figure out how to design it into a book. And I did that by layering it and analyzing what I remembered, what I didn't, and sort of finding out some stuff about memory. But the other thing that really made me laugh about the whole thing is these early diaries, a big deal to me when I got them. My mother gave them to me for a present, for a birthday present or something. And uh, they had a lock and a key on them. And that just made me laugh. I was thinking, yeah, a lot of this stuff, really top secret, that 10-year-old kid stuff that you really... Well, I remember I also had a diary with a little key. I think that was my first diary. It's a, such a little girl sort of thing. It's like having a little purse. Yeah. <laughs> or a little... Like but a it's muff, so weird you know, that like they had a have lock like... and a key. I mean, what, right, the I stuff I was writing in there, like who's going to want to even see it except for the person who wrote it, you know? So it's kind of funny. Had you read a lot of graphic novels? Were you a, a fan of that genre? I'm a big fan of that genre. Yeah. I had been reading them a lot. There's some really great stuff going on in graphic novels. Yeah. In addition is. to how great the art is, the people who are on top of that game are really, really good. Yeah. So I enjoy that group of people. And also, I mean, I went to, I got a master's degree in art. Yes, as we learn in the, well, and also you went to art school initially, right? As we learn in the book. Well, I went to UC Berkeley, but I was an art major and then I got a master's degree. I just kept at it and I thought that was going to be, I taught art for a year at USC. Yeah. And so I thought that was going to be my career until I got to USC and I, I started hanging around their film department because I'd never heard of a film department before at that point. There wasn't a film department at UC Berkeley. so. It didn't even occur to me that you could have a career in that stuff. It just seemed too good to be true. So that because I was faculty, they let me audit screenwriting classes and mm. I took basic filmmaking and stuff like that. And then I switched careers. But before that, it never occurred to me that there was going to be any career for me, except I guess teaching art and putting up having shows. Yeah, I was going to say, it's interesting that you thought that being a, a visual artist was more practical or feasible than being a, a comedy writer or a screenwriter. Like, well, you imagined being a teacher? Like, were you in? No, I didn't. In, did you imagine yourself illustrating, like, for commercial purposes? No, I was way more high man, high minded than that. I imagined myself uh-huh. in the Whitney Annual. That was okay. a big okay. thing. That, and I never actually ha- thought there was a career that was a comedy writer or a screenwriter. I mean, I that wasn't in my sphere of inf- of knowledge at that point. I was just a kid. And the most creative, least structured thing you could do at UC Berkeley was the art department. And also, I just liked, I knew I was going to be in the arts. I actually wanted to be an actress, but my mother gulched that in such a big way 
that I, okay, I'll be an artist. You know, I just, I, but I, I there wasn't a <laughs> You'll film show department her. or anything, yeah. you know, so that, and it, I honestly didn't think you could get into show business. That didn't seem like a thing. It seemed like maybe they pass it on to, to their children. You know, I, I really didn't know what that <laughs> field was. I want to talk about some of the themes in the book because I actually, I think they're like incredibly rich and we can go pretty deeply into any number of them, but just as a kind of basic layout of the plot, so to speak, your family made several big moves as a kid yeah. from New Jersey to Miami to San Francisco, or at least the sort of exurbs of San Francisco. Yeah. I guess it's easy enough to feel like an outsider in the best of circumstances growing up. But when you're the new kid, it's essentially impossible not to. So how when you were going back and reading the diaries and then working on the book, were you struck by the the sort of effect that those moves had on you? Like how much of a part of yourself was shaped by being the new kid? You know, I what I was struck by, I was really entrenched in a group of status-seeking kind of, I don't want to condemn them because everybody was 12, but I mean, they were, they were pretty shallow, the kids I was hanging out with in junior high. So when I moved, I really didn't want to move. I felt like I was a made man. I was in some kind of secret club. And and this was from Miami. Yeah. So this, yeah. But they were, couldn't have been more status driven, more um, one dimensional in terms of what was good and bad and stuff. When I got to California, it was right on the edge of the whole counterculture revolution hippie thing. I feel like it saved my life. I feel like it turned me into such a better person. Mm. I didn't think so at the time. I was miserable, you know, <laughs> but um, once I acclimated, I, I found the drama group and then that was it for me. I turned into a whole other kind of person in that way that you really can when you're 12 or 14 or 13. Right. Just right. Uh, now I'm not this person. Now I'm this person. And it's just a kaboom a change. Right. Well, so there's so much that I love in this book, but two of the sort of thematic conceits, one of them I found sort of hilariously brilliant and the other one was sort of brilliant in a more poignant and even devastating way. But the first one is like you have this idea of the hippocampus. So the hippocampus is like the place where we store memories that we're not necessarily aware of. I'm, uh, I mean, this was indelible in the hippocampus is, then became a meme, um, thanks to Christine Blasey Ford. But you actually illustrate the hippocampus as a hippo. On a campus. Yeah. So can you explain what the hippocampus is and how the hippo in the book uh, processes it? I have a very primitive knowledge of what the brain is, but I'm pretty interested in it. It's one of those things like physics where I keep sitting down to read another book on it and I keep reading book after book about it and only picking up just a little bit more knowledge than I had before because it's pretty complicated and I, I never really take it on the way it's supposed to be taken on. But I was looking for the source of where I couldn't figure out why you, you keep some memories and you don't keep others like and scientists haven't really figured that out, so why would I be able to figure it out? But I was wondering why, for instance, I had a sort of a lengthy piece of writing about a disgusting sandwich that I had uh, had when I was on a trip with my with my parents, and I still remember that sandwich. And uh, yet there was a page that said, the worst day ever, the worst day of my life. And it was, I felt I would never recover from this day, and I don't really have much of a memory of that at all. In fact, I can't tell if I do remember it or if I just remember that page. Right. 
So that just seemed weird to me. So I started looking up where and why uh, memories go. And your brain has all these little compartments that they've given names to, and they call the section that holds the long-term memories the hippocampus, which right okay. off the bat sounded like a hippo on a campus to me. So that was, <laughs> so I thought, well, why don't we take a visit to the hippocampus? And then I started doing that. I started drawing yeah. a conversation with the hippo, the hippo in front of the student center, asking them. Right. Why did we get rid of that memory? And then making up answers because I love it. You know, I have heard that some memories, um, early childhood memories are blocked because of childhood depression. Mm. So I don't know if that's, they don't actually know. So obviously there's no sure answer. The central thematic conceit of the book, I think it's safe to say, is this idea that your older self is in conversation with your younger self. So the older self is trying to intervene, placate, give advice, which is, of course, heartbreakingly impossible because the older self is the product of all the mistakes and choices the younger self made. So this is a concept I've actually played with in my own work. And I wonder if it's something that's been in your mind for a long time, just as a person in the world, or did you summon it for this particular project? Um, I summoned it for this because I started reading stuff. I started to summon it when I I ran into a thing I remembered, but I it was in the beginning of the earliest diary, but I, I hadn't remembered it in a long time. And this time when I remembered it, I was like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> it was uh, the boy that I was in love with it from fourth grade through sixth grade would do a Nazi salute when I would come in. <laughs> Did he know what he was doing? I was a little confused. Like, was it just a sort of physical gesture that he wasn't putting together? He was pretty much going Heil Hitler. And I was in love with him. And I didn't see that as um, any kind of uh, race baiting or or hateful. I thought it thought it was him showing that he was paying attention to me. So okay. how nuts is that? I just, uh, I don't know if I ever shared it with my parents. And if I did, I can't imagine that they didn't sit me down and talk to me about it. But I probably didn't share it with them. So I really, I wrote it in my diary and I saw it as kind of, wow, he really likes me. He does a thing when he sees me. Right. So I felt, well, I really have to intervene here. I have to sit down and talk to this girl. <laughs> and had you remembered the that boy at all? Like, Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. He was my one true love for two years. I don't think that okay. he did okay. anything that indicated I was his one true love. <laughs> but I was actually, I wasn't very insecure of that particular phase of things. I was... um president of my class a lot of times in a row. So I wasn't suffering from, um, and but, you know, president of your class in the fourth grade, that's not really a class president. It's a huh. sort of a vote for this one, vote for that one with a show of hands and everyone's looking kind of a thing. So it, was, it wasn't a big deal, but I, I mean, I wasn't worried that people didn't like me that particular year. Okay. And this was, let's get a sense of the time frame. What was the era? This was the 70s? Where were we in time? No, this is uh, um, the, I think it's, the, yeah, it's the early 60s. Early 60s. Okay. Yeah, but it isn't that long since World War II. So you'd think that would be, although it probably for a kid, if you weren't born during World War II, then it never existed. Although I knew about it. I mean, I come from a Jewish family. They were unreligious, but they were certainly Jewish. And, uh, but they didn't really talk about that much. So I didn't, I somehow didn't have that connection between Nazis and certainly not the discussion that people are having these days. I was surprised to see that you were this boy crazy 
little girl because I wouldn't think of you that way. And so I wonder, like, your older self is looking back and you're often portray your older self as like a, you know, middle aged woman wearing a, a resist T-shirt. Yeah, that's how you signify. That's sort of your timestamp. You signal that you're speaking from 2020 or 2019 or whenever. When I started doing the drawings, yeah. I had just gotten that shirt. So it yes. was 2016, actually, now that I think of it. Okay, okay. So you're talking to your, your younger self, and your younger self was disgusted by sex. And I thought one of the great moments where, you know, she's also in love with uh, John Lennon, and there's this great fantasy sequence where uh, she's like sitting on a couch with john lennon and she's saying sex is disgusting and he says oh totally it's i i totally agree and you know let's not have sex you and me or something like that <laughs> well it's essentially that but the thing that made me laugh when i was reading about you know the, the different versions of my uh nutty romance life at this period is just i was always in love with all the kind of cute young boys who were on tv mm-hmm I was very obsessed with TV, and if there was a kid on the show and it was a boy, then I was in love with him pretty much, unless he was just too off the charts horrible. But I was also in love with just stars, you know, the the cute stars. So, for instance, um, a young Clint Eastwood was on this show, Rawhide, that I watched because Clint Eastwood was cute. And I was just thinking to myself, what if I were... 12 or 11 or whatever, I went out with these people. I actually did a drawing that got removed from the book because it was so creepy looking <laughs> of me with a, like, uh, you know, a, a 25 or a 32-year-old star having lunch. <laughs> oh, just having lunch, though, that even that was not acceptable? Oh, well, no, it was, it was, it just, it had the look of um, just creepy pedophilia. Those crushes have so little basis in reality. And then I was thinking, like, if I really had ever met John Lennon, what would I be doing? Like, say, what would I talk to him about? I'd be going, yeah, those songs on the new album, good. They were good. (laughs) I'd have nothing to talk to this guy about. You know, it was uh, just kind of funny. What is the inner workings of one of those crushes? They're like, there's nothing there at all. Well, I was struck by a sense that it's you had a tendency to perhaps conflate having a romantic interest in a guy with wanting to be that guy. Oh yeah. That was what I, I noticed too. That was what I was writing pretty much was I'm in love with him. And by that, I meant, why can't I be him? (laughs) You quote that Gloria Steinem line, we're becoming the men we wanted to marry. And I was always underwhelmed by that line. I got the feeling you sort of were too, but it does get at something. It's exactly right. Yeah, I think it was true. I used to always identify with boys in movies and I rarely identified with the women because or girls because they always made them sort of nothing. Even, you know, they even do that now, much to everyone's observational distress now. But at the time, nobody even noticed it was a thing, you know, like, I was really obsessed with the movie West Side Story, but I wanted to be a sing and dance and hoodlum. I didn't want to be Maria, just somebody working at a dress shop who thought she was pretty. Right. That just seemed like nothing. So the other guys had all the parts. And the truth is that they really did. You know, that I was actually picking up the reality of it, but I just never identified with the girls in anything. They were always missing everything interesting. I really want to talk to you about the role of funniness in all of this, because I've always thought 
you know, I think about the Christopher Hitchens, the famous, you know, women aren't funny. Yeah, that's essay. so wrong. It was, it's wrong, but it actually, it points at something. I do think that there is something intrinsically, there's something not feminine about telling a joke. Like there's something not stereotypically feminine. There's something like I have found like in that moment, if I'm on stage or something, not that I'm a stand-up comedian by any means, but like if I'm making an audience laugh, there is something about that moment that just seems to transcend any sort of sexuality or. Yeah, it's totally true. And I can explain yeah. to you why, because I, when I was doing stand-up, it occurred to me that I couldn't figure out what you were allowed to be as a female on stage. And it's a power move. When you think about it, it's right. totally about exactly. having power over other people, which you're not supposed to have if you're traditionally feminine in old models. And I mean, I don't think anybody's bothered by that stuff nearly to the extent now. But at the time, it's because you don't you're not offering the audience a choice of reactions to have. You're on stage in front of them and you're going, you will laugh. And right. if they don't, you're in an adversarial position with them. And if they do, you controlled them. Yes. That's considered very unfeminine. But did that feel like your natural self, even as a kid? That is my natural self. I've been doing that forever. You know, you, you sort of show up with um, the personality deficits that are helping you at all. And, and uh, like, it, it always occurs to me, like, if you're a, a kid who is one of those really unbelievably beautiful looking people, you find out pretty young that there's a lot of power behind that and you use it to some extent. And if you're me and a lot of people like me and you find that if you you separate out what's funny about a thing and start hurling in that direction, you obtain some power and you keep doing it. Do you subscribe to the theory that like there's never been a super attractive person who's also funny? No, that is not true as it turns out. It used to be mm. more true, but I mean a lot of women who are doing stand up now are in incredibly attractive are very hot yeah okay it's a personality trait that you bring upon yourself for reasons having to do with rejection and power and repressed anger and cerebral approach to content and you know it, it's a lot of things that all congeal and you start young everybody I know who was all the especially I, I because I have a weird brain that um, catalogs stuff I've learned that all the women I know who are funny, because I always ask the same questions of people after I'm friends with them, I have mother troubles. A hundred percent of the, well, no, it's not a hundred percent. I know one woman who really idolized her mother and really got along great with her. And everybody else had serious mother troubles. It's some kind of reaction to a disturbed mother-daughter relationship for some reason. Do you think it goes the same way? With men, male comedians always have father troubles. Uh, no, a lot of them have mother troubles, yeah, too. Yeah, it's always the mother. Yeah. It's not always the mother, though. It could be father troubles, too. But I just was cataloging the women because I'm friends with a lot of women who I think are really funny. And I always ask that question because I'm keeping a lit, indistinct list in my head. And, and it's always the same. They're, and so often a narcissistic mother who um, kind of dominates did you feel like you were able to seduce men with your humor? You know, I didn't ever feel I was able to seduce men, period. I didn't have any sense of that ever, really. I mean, it just never was a thing. I noticed that um, I couldn't really fall in love with a guy unless he was funny on some level. 
And because that's a big part of me. And if you can't play around with it, then you're just right. restricted to not being yourself very much. And that's not nearly so good. I, of course, in those diaries, the people I was falling in love with, the young Nazis and so forth, they didn't require a personality trait or anything. Yeah, not not big joke tellers, I would assume. Among They them. were just completely a one-dimensional reaction to somebody cute. So, like, if you could talk to your younger self, like, what would you say? Because you're very generous, actually, in the interactions. You're sort of like just asking questions. They're almost like a therapist, like, huh, what made you think that? And, you know, you're, you're very gentle. And I, when I imagine myself in that scenario, I sometimes want to actually physically attack my younger self, like knock some sense into her, literally. Well, I just am remembering how, how my younger self reacted to people yelling at her. <laughs> which right. was to just shut down. I was realizing I could never have told my younger self anything because starting at about 15, anything that somebody just told me as a truth, I would go, yeah, well, what do you know? Right. So that was pretty much me. So I wasn't, I was working it a different way. Right. I always imagine to my younger self, just like looking at my older self and saying like, this is as far as you got. Like, oh, why should I listen to you? This is, you know. You've come in with bad news if if I'm looking at myself. Yeah. 50 years from now, <laughs> 40 years from now. Yeah. And also think how scared you'd be of what you were going to go through. You know, you, right. uh, certainly I, I wouldn't have wanted to hear about it. There's a really devastating moment in the book. I think the younger self says, there's so much in life I've never experienced. I'll never fall in love or be married. I'll never have children. I'll never own a horse or see the rest of the world. I don't want to die. And your older self says, relax, kid. You get more Tuesdays. And then your older self thinks to herself, although even without a war, you only get around to one of those things on your list, which is kind of weird. And gosh, that's kind of took my breath away. Well, you know, the, the other part of it that occurred to me when I was reading that list is I wasn't actually giving that list any thought. I was repeating what I was seeing on TV when I wrote that list. I was I knew what I was supposed to have on that list. I mm -hmm. added the horse. Right. Well, the horse feels authentic. Yeah, the horse. I, I believe that that little girl is worried about the horse, but not necessarily getting married. I never did really want to get married. I was writing in some of these diaries and I, they didn't make it into the book, but I was writing, I'm never getting married. I'm never having kids. I wrote that a lot. I'm never, mm. never wearing makeup and never wearing lipstick. I, ha I, I was never having my period in the back of one of those books. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I had a lot of real specific thoughts, not many of them grounded in reality, but, um, but I was specific. I never did really want to have kids. You know, I never actually imagined getting married or having kids. Let's talk about how you got into comedy writing. So the book leaves us, you are at UC Berkeley and you're studying art. I went and got a master's degree. So I was there for a right. long time. I was there for six years. Yes. Yes. So uh, as is well known, you were the original head writer on the David Letterman show. And if I'm not mistaken, you met David Letterman in the late seventies while working yeah. on Mary Tyler Moore's variety I show. I met him at the comedy Mary, store. I, yeah. Oh, okay. Before I met him, I got a job on the new Laugh-In, which was this terrible attempt at rebooting Laugh-In with an all new cast. The, the only distinguishing feature of it besides the terrible writing was Robin Williams was on that cast. Oh, wow. So I met Robin there, but um, otherwise, uh, that was my first job in TV writing jokes, which I got 
rather quickly, I moved to LA. I, I had this job teaching art at USC and I was hanging around the film department. I just mentioned that before. And um, I learned about, I took a screenwriting class and stuff like that and really loved it. Then I moved back up to San Francisco where I proceeded to have an asthma attack for a year because I didn't really want to move back up to San Francisco. I went up, back up to be, because I, I had a boyfriend I was living with and he really wanted to go home. And I was back and making myself nuts. So I moved back to LA. I wrote spec scripts and I moved back to LA with these spec material by myself and got a job so quickly that it really, it's almost hard to imagine that it actually happened like that. I was staying in a, um, a weird hotel where, you know, the kind of hotels in LA that you stay if you take a hooker, it's like per hour. Oh, sure. Yes. <laughs> Those aren't just in LA. They used to find them right uh, at the mouth of the Lincoln Tunnel, of course. Ah. Then it, that was the other, that's the other hot spot for that. Yes. So they're hard to get to because you can't just depart. That, off that's the right. <laughs> yeah, LA's got them by freeway entrances and exits too, actually, yeah. now that I think about it. <laughs> anyway, I somehow found one of these because I was on a pretty limited budget and uh, was staying in one and moving the furniture in front of the door oh. every night because there were people watching me. You know, It's a crazy set of stuff that I would never do now because it's dangerous. But that's what I did, and I made a contact with somebody Somebody gave me the name of a woman who used to was one of the creators of Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, and she hired me as a sort of a minimally paid researcher to help her kind of organize stuff. She liked me. We had lunch, you know, and she she took per, uh, pity on me and had lunch with me, and then she liked me and and she gave me this this job, and I felt really validated by that. And then pretty quickly after that, I got this job on the new Laugh In. I got an mm. agent. I was hanging around the Improv. And I'd never met people like this before. I only knew artists before that. And I, right off the bat, I met Andy Kaufman. Of wow. I, met, I fell wow. fell into a pit of really creative, nutty people just quickly, and um, and got this job within a few months, and was stunned that it was so much easier to get a job like this than it was to get another job teaching art where you had to have a resume and you had to have uh, letters and you had to have a show record and, you know. Right. Did you feel like an imposter or did you feel like you fit in? It was the first peer group that I ever really felt pretty good about, you know. It was, mm. <laughs> it was really, it was fun. It was, yeah, it was, a, it was, I did feel like I fit, fit in because there's nobody more outsider than comedians. My God. I'd never met a comedian before that. And I started at some point while I was writing for Laugh and I started doing stand up because everybody I knew was doing stand up. And I thought, well, I need to try this because the job was sort of so dehumanizing and so, so stripped of individual authorship that I wanted to see if anything I was coming up with was funny. So I started hanging around the comedy store and that was where I met Letterman. What was it like being a female stand up at that time? Was it as bad as everybody says? Well, it was that thing I was telling you, there were very few and they weren't getting spots at the comedy store. That was not a very good situation for women. There were a couple who were succeeding far better than others. Like my friend Elaine Boosler was ahead of the curve by a lot. She right. was sort of the one, the anointed one. And she'd been doing this since she was 21. So I would think at this point I was about 26 or 27. So... uh like we mentioned a minute ago, if it if it makes it into this cut, <laughs> um, 
I found myself when I started being on stage, I knew how to write jokes at this point because I was writing them for laughing. And I had never written a joke before that, by the way. I didn't understand what a joke was exactly. I knew how to be funny, but it was in context. Right. I can't imagine writing a joke, like sitting down to write a joke. I still don't understand. how. Yeah. That well, works. I did figure it out. There's, it's not that hard to figure out, but you do have to sit down and figure it out. And after I did that, then I realized I could write jokes and I started trying them out. And, uh, but what, it, what it dawned on me really early was I didn't know what to be like on a stage in front of people. Like the person I was as an artist who had been living in the mountains and kind of isolation and didn't seem to work out. And I didn't feel that if I wore a dress and heels, like I saw, it was only a couple of female stand-ups, and none of them seemed like a model to me. Like Phyllis Diller was too cartoony mm. and from another era. And Joan Rivers, I never connected to at all. She looked like a set of touch points that were just from some other world, like all that stuff about get the ring, get the ring. And, right. You know, right. was just didn't fit. I'd been at UC Berkeley for six years. So I didn't like her material and I didn't like her whole orientation. So I didn't see her as a model and the way she would wear like a glamorous gown and high heels. I would never do that. And if I did, I would feel so ill at ease that I wouldn't be able to to function as quantity on a stage. Was she going on the Johnny Carson show at that time? Yeah. I'm curious. She's, well, my whole life, she's always been on something, you know. Okay, okay. Yeah, that's interesting because I feel like I can imagine seeing her out of context in a stand-up act and have it a different takeaway than maybe, you know, put seeing over time. Her material was too hard for me to relate to. Yeah, I didn't yeah. like it, actually. I didn't like that whole orientation of uh, right. men and women. And I became very good friends with Lane Boosler, who's still my friend. and Yeah. And she and I were really personally objecting mostly to the self-deprecation. Yeah, because this is the, the one of the earlier waves of feminism and the idea that you would be going, oh, I'm so disgusting. When men see me, they throw up, you right. know, and that right. that just seemed like, uh-uh, no. So I, but I didn't know what replaced it. The one comedian who I did like, who was big at the time, was Lily Tomlin. And she was somebody mm -hmm. who went in and out of 50 characters. And that was right. unusable modeling for me because I didn't know how to do that. So it was hard to figure out. I, it was the same time Diane Keaton and Annie Hall seemed like a kind of a good, kind of a kooky model, but it wasn't a comedian. It was hard. Right. I remember really puzzling this one through, you know, like what am I allowed to do on a stage that isn't threatening to an audience, but will allow them to relax with me and find me funny and not be put off. And there wasn't any particular model except maybe Elaine. So what kinds of jokes did you tell? I was writing kind of surrealist jokes to begin with. Would you like to know what my big opening laugh was? Absolutely. Because that one I remember. I had kind of a this troubled childhood. I didn't have a date for the senior prom at my high school, so my father made my brother take me. But it worked out okay. My brother and I are getting married. And <laughs> <laughs> um, we got a house in the valley. We're going to settle down and raise mutants. So... <laughs> And did that go over well? Did you yeah, succeed? Then it was kind of I mean, you thought, yeah, 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 yeah. So the, I don't know where you go with that. You know what I didn't uh, know how to do was make that a more personal 
description of anything in my actual life. I mean, the stand-up comedy of the time, the big guys at the comedy store at the time were Letterman and Jay Leno, and they were all doing, yeah, did you see the commercial about United Airlines where the guy, yeah. you know, was a lot of making fun of TV commercials, a lot of... Airports, always the airplane airports and, airlines, and airport jokes. A lot of air. yes. <laughs> so, I mean, you were, it's well known you were involved with David Letterman for at least a decade, I think. Yeah, I was involved with him for a decade and he was involved okay. with me for seven years. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing I learned later. <laughs> you could open with that. That's a good, you could yeah. open with that on stage. So were, you met working on Mary Tyler Moore? No, I met him at the comedy store. Okay, and so how did the show get developed? Were you involved in like early development stage of his show? Oh, his show, yeah. I met him at the comedy store and he and I were seeing each other before the Mary Tyler Moore show. Okay. And uh, and here was, this is the big giveaway here, is uh, I was going out on interviews. I had the new Laugh-In had ended, and I was looking for another job. And I went out on an interview to be a writer on this Mary Tyler Moore variety show, which was going to be big because it was on right after 60 Minutes. And that was the big show right then. Yeah. And, um, and don't forget, it was three networks then. So that was exciting. And I went out on the interview and I remember telling him I was hoped I would get it and I was excited about it. And then I got it and I go in for the first writer's meeting and they announce who the cast is and he was in the cast. He didn't bother to mention that, Hmm. even though, uh, you know, we were (laughs) were spending every night together. Hmm. So, yeah. Hmm. (laughs) But like, okay, because, you know, it's funny because I was just, I had a guest really recently. It's probably going to be the guest that uh, is the interview the week prior to this one going up. And he was talking about how Letterman was a really, really early influence on him. Just the dryness, the sort of extremely sarcastic deadpan, that whole sensibility. And, you know, it seems to me that a lot of that was you was a combination. He and I had that in common. And that was one of the things that really clicked with us and why I was really enjoying him. But what he taught me about joke writing that was extremely useful is I told you what joke I was opening with. I was writing kind of surrealist, insane jokes. And he taught me that the way that he had that figured out, and Leno too, was you, the audience, and me, the performer, know this guy is crazy. You know, like, you and the audience are joined in the opinion of how nuts the other guy is. Okay. Which was a really useful little triad. So you invented stupid pet tricks and then stupid human tricks. Is that true? Yeah, I invented that stuff, but it was, I invented a a ton of stuff because, you know, before we did his, I started writing jokes for him for the Tonight Show because we were, you know, a couple at that point and I was, Mm. he was really in dismay distress and I would say here's some jokes here are the jokes from my act why don't you use them and then I'll use them later again because I was nuts that's (laughs) that's a carryover from the diaries yeah really (laughs) you mean you were just giving him your material yeah and then I thought he'll 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 use it once on the tonight show and then I'll take it back oh okay that's how that works usually yeah Yeah, that is not how that works (laughs) so uh yeah, I was doing that kind of thing. And then I, so I had already started writing for him. And then he got a daytime pilot uh, for a daytime talk show. And I had wrote that. And then that didn't get picked up. And then he got a morning show live 
which did get picked up. And I had wrote that and that was on the air 90 minutes a day live wow. for um, maybe five months. Was this like in the early, late 70s? When would this have been? was the early 80s. I think it was okay. 80 or 81 was the morning show. And wow. then the night show, I think, started in 82 through lately. And so I was, uh, you know, I had been refining this relationship as a writer for him and a creator of a show for him through three different things before it succeeded at night. Um, I had it sort of figured out by the time. And I had it. I actually, after the morning show, we had such a big falling out that I was never going to write for him again. But the keys with the, to the kingdom were with me, kind of. I had been in charge, you know, so I came back to do the night show and I stayed for a while. And you were still together. Yeah, we were together, but we broke up between the morning show and the oh, night okay. show for a while. Okay. Because I remember, so I re when did the late show start? Was it the mid? I think it's like the 81, 82 cusp. I'm not sure. Okay, right. Because I remember being a kid, you know, so like David Letterman was the cool person when I was like in junior high school, what we used to call junior high school. Right. And <laughs> I, middle school. I had junior high school, too. I don't know when they made that middle school ship. Yeah, I know. Junior I high school seemed like it was more brutal than middle school. Well, it's also cooler. Like who wants to be in middle schools? Yeah. Like what middle, is middle I mean, school? I don't know. But so, yeah. So I, you know, that was it was revelatory to see somebody like on TV, mainstream uh, media being so edgy and dry and kind of like the feeling was if, if this was for smart people and, you know, it wasn't this like rimshot kind of humor that you got with Johnny Carson, for instance, I mean, who was obviously brilliant in his own right. Well, when you think about it, the demarcation line is there between vaudeville and contemporary we were on that demarcation line because the stuff right. that I grew up with that old kind of variety shows and the old sort of TV was a sort of cornball humor that came out of burlesque and vaudeville. Yes. Yes. Even like the Donnie and Marie show. I remember watching that when I was a little girl, I was mesmerized by that and they would have, it wasn't a comedy show per se. It was a musical variety show, but they yeah. would have their, their little bits where they were <laughs> supposed to be, they were razzing each other. Well, there were a lot of that kind of show at the right. time that a star and then there, there'd be a singer, but the singer would just sing contemporary songs, not the songs that they were known for. Uh huh. You know, there'd right. be that like a, they'd have somebody sing a rock and roll hit, you know, just somebody. So with this previous guest, you know, we were talking sort of about what's going on now with sort of public sensibility, people being being very fragile, the whole problem with humor and comedy that's hard to tell a joke anymore and you know we tend to like pin this on college students that they're they're so unable to hear irony and they're unable to kind of figure out when somebody is just being deadpan or when they're being rude and i thought you know it's interesting because college humor back in the 80s was really defined by the Letterman sensibility. And it was like the opposite of not being able to hear irony. It was all about irony. And I wonder if that's something that you think about as the decades have marched on. Have you seen a change in just sort of the way people hear humor? Yeah, you do have to think about that stuff because stuff changes. On the other hand, the thing that occurs to me is there's always been stuff changing. 
And if you don't have those periods where there's transition, you have no change at all. So there's awkward things that happen in the interim, you know, like all this stuff with the pronouns and stuff. It remains to be seen where that eventually falls. It may or may not. It may may end up being a piece of history that people don't remember or remember as a weird moment. Or it may end up being just the entire future. You know, you, you can't exactly tell, but you, you don't want to be hurting the wrong people who are identified with that, especially young people get so identified with, that's what my diaries are. You know, you get so identified with whatever's around you and um, because you don't really have a grounded sense of identity yet. And they would be people with a good sense of humor and you don't want to be alienating them and hurting their feelings for no reason because that wasn't your idea. So you have to kind of dance around that stuff now right? to some extent. But on the other hand, if their humor is ever changing, I mean, if you look, if you look at old books full of humor, it's so racist. It's so unbelievably racist to say nothing of sexist. I mean, everything has been sexist since the beginning of advanced civilization. But the racism in early comedy is breathtaking. And then there was a time where the smarter people weren't doing that. It's kind of like that, I think. But there's this whole idea of punching up versus punching down in comedy. And this this principle ha- as, is now being mapped on to public discourse generally. Like you're allowed to critique something if you're critiquing somebody who has more power than you, right? You know, that is kind of the way it, it had it's always been. It's not funny to make fun of people who have... Well, actually, you know, now that I'm thinking about the MAGA people, that puts them in, that's a category all into themselves, but I don't think we analyze them in terms of power or no power. We analyze them in terms of mistaken ideals and miscomprehension of data yeah. and, and just kind of stupidity, you know, I mean, but you, comedy has always been about punching up. It's a power struggle game comedy. It's about taking your world back and reorganizing it so that you are not a powerless person in it. That's what is so fun about it is it's a real reorganization of stuff that bothers you. You've defined the narrative, and once you define the narrative, you're not the victim of it anymore. You've changed what any, how anyone sees it. So that's how great is that? It's a great thing. Well, right. That's Exactly like Nora Ephron always said, if you slip on a banana peel, you're a fool. If you tell the story of slipping on a banana peel, you're the hero. Yeah, right. That's another way to say it. But something like I'm just thinking now, like something like stupid human tricks. And I guess for our listeners who are maybe a little younger, who are not familiar with these bits, so stupid pet tricks was something you invented, but just people would like come on stage with their pets and the dog would like sing or something like. (laughs) Well, I got that idea because. So I mentioned I did all these mutations of his show with him before, and we were slowly figuring out, well, what is this show going to be besides you and um, you being him? It appeared that it was almost like putting together a daily newspaper, you know, was endless amounts of things that you have to keep refilling every Mm -hmm. day that you're working on a thing. We, We defined it as act one and act five where the comedy pieces were and then something at the top of the show Mm -hmm. and maybe other little things too, but those were the two. So whatever act one and act five were, if you're on Tuesday, don't forget you need them for Wednesday, Thursday and Friday as well. And next week, Monday, Tuesday. So the best thing that you could do would be to have something refillable. So we were trying to think of things that 
you could have another one of. Right. And it occurred to me, I remember very specifically having this idea because um, when I was in college, I'd been a dog lover forever. I'm a dog obsessive, you might even say. But I remember going to a friend's house when we had no money when I was in art school. And the thing we did in the evening besides drink is we put uh, socks on this these people's Doberman Pinscher. And the dog was, you know, kind of scooting around on, in socks. And we were finding that hilarious. <laughs> and I was just thinking, I think everybody does that with their dog. If it's a shirt or glasses or whatever, as long as it isn't hurting the animal, you know, I, I draw the line there. But just weird stuff like I was defining trick when I thought of stupid Petricks as every time you turn on the vacuum, the dog spins in a circle and does a particular bark. Right. That being the opposite kind of of a horse that can count. But that was what we, what we were seeking is just funny animal behavior that people right. are enjoying. And actually, so where I was going with this question was, so stupid human tricks evolved out of stupid pet tricks. And then right. how did you frame stupid human tricks so you weren't punching down? You have to be careful. You have to be careful. You know, we thought of, I thought of when we were trying to think of more things, I thought of stupid baby tricks. <laughs> that's the ultimate punch down. They have no power. They are, they, babies have all the power, actually. So well, maybe that's... The other part of it is that it immediately seemed like a recipe for child abuse. <laughs> or appearance thereof. Yeah. Or for real. I mean, people wanting to get on TV are pretty ruthless. Oh, yeah. So you don't want to give them an opportunity to like put endanger their kid in the name of um, getting to be on TV. So we didn't ever do that one. And the stupid human tricks, it was pretty much people in there doing stuff with them, themselves. And we they were screened, so it wouldn't be anything grim. You know, I mean, that was never... <laughs> that, that doesn't work anyway. Early on, we also learned... You know, I learned a lot about people by working on that show for a while. Like, if you have on a guest who you booked because it seemed funny that they are communicating with people from outer space and then you bring them on and it turns out they're schizophrenic. That is not very funny. (laughs) So, so you don't do that. But did you ever, were you in situations where that was happening and he just had to deal with it? That happened at least once. Okay. Somebody that you, when you're watching them, you think, I think she's mentally ill. You know, I mean, right. where it seemed funny because you saw the pictures of her by a rocket ship and in her space outfit and, in her, you know, so you go, oh, well, I'm a real kooky person. And then you bring him in and you see mental illness and you think, not funny. Not- right. <laughs> right. Now, now that just happens on Twitter, right? People just, they're, they're, <laughs> their mental illnesses are on full display and they're yeah, g- boy. gaining traction with every uh, display. Every every expression. The internet wasn't even around when we started doing no. that stuff. And I, I, on a daily basis, have been debating with myself whether the internet, the internet brought us a lot of um, instant gratification and entertainment and certainly the research element of it. All you have to do is, is seek and you shall find. You don't have to go to a, a library and sit there and look for a book and then not f- know what page it's on. You just find. Right. So in that sense, it's been great. But the idea that people can connect with every insane idea and make a group out of it, it's yeah. terrifying. But it seems to me that these identity categories and they each have their sort of advocacy groups and anti-defamation 
groups, like how that must really affect comedy. I mean, you think back on the David Letterman show, he was kind of, I don't want to say mean, but he, he wasn't, he wasn't pandering. It was not like the soft pedal that you see now. He was kind of mean too. I mean, I yeah, look back okay. on those yes, things and thought say it. Yes. he was arrogant. He was snobby, yeah. you know. He, but the audience, you know, the, the smarties in the audience who thought that we were cooler than, you know, watching The Tonight Show, for instance. I always hated The Tonight Show, by the way. Yeah. You were not a Carson fan? No, I'm still not a Carson fan. I always thought he was cold and had a really awful relationship to women. Oh. I didn't like watching. There was never anybody on there that looked like anyone that I would ever want to be friends with or anyone who would like me, you know, like it was all this kind of slick show business people. Right, right. I remember when Sandra Bernhardt was on, would go on Letterman. Yeah, she is a real talk about an outsider. Incredible. But like, I just the way they were interacting, I just remember there was one where she like kicked a roll of paper towels into the audience or something like that. That I don't remember, but I've got video of, um, for me, one of the most amazing things was on the morning show, Andy Kaufman came on and said that he'd been, um, his career wasn't working out and he was now a homeless person and went into the audience. (laughs) He had put a little bit of Vaseline under his nose so it looked like his nose was running. And went out into the audience and panhandled. Oh, my God. That's <laughs> still one of the funniest, most insane things I've ever seen anywhere is Andy Kaufman destitute asking if anyone had a couple bucks. Were you close friends with Andy Kaufman? Uh, you know, nobody was really close friends with him. But yeah, I was for a while. I was pretty friendly with him. I actually... Before I even met Dave, I was supposedly a writer for Andy Kaufman at the Improv. He was doing a show called Midnight Snacks, and he was calling me as writer, but I'm here to tell you that no matter what anybody else says, um, nobody wrote for Andy Kaufman. You know, you could say, yeah, no, that's great, and that would be writing for Andy Kaufman. You, or you could say, hey, you want, a, you want two of these glasses? Or, you know, <laughs> but, I mean, he, he was a self-propelled unit of... Um, ingenuity and weirdness. So when you like think of yourself as a humorous person, as a professional funny person over these decades, do you think it would be a lot harder to get into it today? I mean, there's all sorts of talk about how, you know, like I mentioned a little bit ago, like it's hard to be funny. A lot of these comedians, like people like Hannah Gadsby, they are doing something, but it's not necessarily comedy. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, but you know what the uncabaret is. I met you at a, um, I met you at a, a sort of an adjunct reading situation by the same people. Oh, that's right. We did a show together. That's right. And I still remember that shirt you were wearing. It was really, it was like a Japanese kind of. No, that was my Chinese. So that was a period of my life where the only clothes I wore when I went out in public were culturally appropriative of uh, of Asians. I only wore Chinese clothing. Can and it was imagine? beautiful. It was never it get really away. great on you. I still have that dress. Thank you. I ordered it off the internet. I got into some weird thing where I was like wearing these Chong Sams all the time, but I could never wear that now. Can you imagine? Well, no, it seems to me that you could totally wear it now. It it Mm. was really beautiful and it would just be an individual choice. You know, it doesn't seem. But there was the girl who got, there was actually um, a high school student. She had the same last name as I do, believe it or not. I don't think we're related, but she wore like one of those Chong Sams as a prom dress and she looked beautiful. She was in the Midwest somewhere. And somebody on Twitter slammed her 
you know, like my culture is not your prom or something. And she got massively dragged. Well, you know, that to me, there's like of, of all the different things that we need to be sensitive about, the most confusing one to me is cultural appropriation, because that's the whole way that art is made is you look at other people's precedents and you get inspired and then you start to do something on your own. The idea that you're going to be an original and are stuck with um, only the thoughts that you came into this world with is against the whole idea of education. Yeah. So that doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, I don't understand that. I'll never understand that. But do you think that like young people today intrinsically have less of a sense of humor than young people used to? No, I totally don't. There's a million really, really funny comedians around right now. And I think it would be actually probably easier now because, um, I don't know, I find really funny people on Twitter. I mean, I used to. The old Twitter was way full of funny people and really fun, much more fun than since 2016. The, uh, by the old Twitter, I mean before, um, before the monster ascended. And now it just has been, you know, a lot of people sharing information about how nuts everything is. But, but it used to be, I used to, I got attracted to it because I would wake up in the morning and have a reason to try out jokes. So I was actually keeping a notebook mm. and writing jokes about the news and then trying them out. And I thought that was really, really fun. And, uh, and then 2016 happened and everything changed. But no, I don't think it's harder at all. I think that um, it's harder to get paid for the arts now is a thing. It's easier to get your work out, though. You can put, if I were a kid now, I would have so much stuff on YouTube and, and Twitter and probably TikTok and whatever. I would be putting a ton of stuff out. There was no platform like that. When I started, it was you had to move to L.A. and then you would go around, try to get an agent, try to get somebody to read your stuff, see if you. In fact, that's the weird, the weird real difference is when The Letterman Show started, I was making these videos called Videos by Bob the Dog, and they were dog point of view videos. This was oh, like 81, right. 86. Yeah. Was that your shared dog? Because Dave always made it sound like Bob was. Yeah, no, it was dog. our shared dog. And we had another one soon thereafter, but it was just using the one name. And uh, the thing that was amazing about it is I was the only one really making pet videos at that point because I had a camera and a TV, access to a TV camera. You know, there mm-hmm. wasn't... Now anybody who wants to can and does make whatever. And it's out in simultaneous thousands and millions of versions, you know. But you used to have to, like, think about writing, you know. like you. To be somebody who wasn't employed as a writer and have your work out, you'd have to write a letter to the editor pretty much. Right. There wasn't a place for it. And also, if you did get hired as a writer, which I figured out how to do too, then um, you were getting paid money, actual money to write content because they only people who made it in that door were able to be paid for it. Now, yeah. it's... Uh, I have a friend who um, writes long pieces for things and gets a total of $150 or something for it. I know. It's horrible. I mean, how do you feel about your career now? Would you have imagined that your life and lifestyle and finances would be what what they are? I mean, I don't I have no idea what your finances are, but I I, I get paid a fraction of what I got paid 20 years ago. Exactly. Uh, Yeah, no, I wouldn't have imagine that I thought one thing leads to another leads to another and it, it, not the case necessarily. No, I thought I would continue 
in TV, but I walked away from a lot of stuff because it was making me angry. And I come from this incredibly angry mother and I didn't want to be my mother who my mother was angry all the time, unspecifically, you know, you'd say, what, what's the matter? And she'd go, look where you put that cup, you know, and that would be it. That's the amount of looking into it that we would do. And I saw her as kind of a nightmarish model. So I didn't want to be a person who was angry all the time. So what kinds of projects did you walk away from? Oh, a ton of sitcom and producing things and <laughs> a ton of things. Like that went on to be big hits? Some of them went on to be big hits, but that didn't matter to me. It was What mattered to me was that I wasn't in a situation where I was angry. I had one sitcom job when I left Letterman Show where I was waking up in the middle of the night and I was afraid to go back to sleep because it meant I would have to go back to work. So I was staying up all night to own oh. the night so I'd have other thing in my life besides that. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I thought I can't I can't live like this. It's going to turn me into my mother. So I I walked away from stuff like that. Have you always kept diaries? I'm remembering you going on uh at least once you were back promoting one of your books and I think you were with Dave and you were reading back uh from your journals from your relationship. I don't know if that yeah. was uh staged or if those were real. Yeah. No, it was a real page. I looked really hard to find a page that didn't really say had some red herrings at the front of it and didn't really lead to anything so that I could uh, terrify him. <laughs> but, oh, so that wasn't planned. Those bits, I was actually looking at those bits uh, in preparation for this conversation. And I thought, oh, they, they have to have discussed that ahead of time. But no? No, I, I, uh, what I, I didn't tell him I had the diary page with me. <laughs> well, I knew this guy so well. I mean, he he ended up looking at me with a facial expression that looked like my mother. And that was the last I was invited on the show. Was, oh, really? Yeah. It was, he he did not find that funny, but he he was doing a certain kind of joke at me that he does of like, you know, yeah, well, that's what people say when you take off your clothes or whatever, mm -hmm. those kind of jokes he makes. And I thought, okay, if he comes at me, I'm bringing this diary page in my waistband and I'm going to pull it out and, and uh, spring it on him. And I thought, I can do this because I've known this guy very closely for 10 years. And I looked at his face and he was not finding it funny. I thought he would think it was kind of funny, like in a, um, a saloon scene in a, in a Western where yeah. you go, putting the gun on the table here. Okay, I'm not going to use it. I'm just saying it's right here. And <laughs> but there really wasn't anything. I wasn't ever going to say anything particularly terrible. It was just that I was, um, I had weaponized a diary page. Because <laughs> I, again, as a little kid, as a teenager, I remember watching during that era and sometimes you would be in the, we would see you backstage or he would wave to you or something. And I remember thinking, well, this is a power couple. I was really jazzed about the idea of being in a power couple, like equal yeah. partners sort of thing. And so you guys were an example of that. And even after the and breakup, it seems like there was a little people. bit. It, no, it actually doesn't work. It's a huge myth, but it's one that I uh, bought into Me too. quite quite strenuously up until maybe like, you know, <laughs> four years ago. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I thought it was a thing too. I mean, I, I think I got it from George Burns and Gracie Allen. And I think mm. it did work for them because she died young. Oh, <laughs> he was writing her material and then she was just an actress. He was the brains behind all of that. But I really, um, yeah, I don't know who, where I where I saw that. I mean, you, you see it in 
in print, you know, Jacqueline Kennedy and Jack Kennedy, they look like a power couple. Then you find out what was going on, and it's like, oh, my goodness. But they weren't a professional power couple. Oh, yes, they were. She was a first lady. Okay, but I'm thinking, like, James Carville and Mary Madeline or... Yeah, I don't know how that functions. That's another version of George Conway and Kellyanne Conway. Well... (laughs) Yes. Or let's not even get into Amy Coney Barrett and her seven kids and her. Oh, my God. No, let's ex- not get extremely high power. But so you wrote, was it in the late 90s? You actually wrote Meryl Marco's Guide to Love. Yeah, I was broken up then. And I was I thought it would be interesting and funny. I would make it funny to go to um, hundreds of love seminars. So I went to them and they they were painful in the extreme. You know, the funny thing I had that was I was doing this kind of humorous participatory journalism at the time and which was always great because for me it's fun to see what really goes on and it's fun to take reality and add comedy to it but the part you forget about is you have to actually be there as a human (laughs) so when you're sitting there it's like oh my god and then they call on you or somebody asks you if you want to go have coffee or you know it's just there was painful. And what kind of people are showing up to these things? Uh, pretty much the people you would think. Yeah. Sort of sad people or lost people. Or I saw this one woman who worked at the post office out here at one of them. And I'm, <laughs> I'm still shuddering at that memory. She always looked, all the years that I saw her at the post office, I thought, I don't know what the deal is on her, but it looks very unhappy. And there she was looking for love at a love seminar. And clearly, I don't, I still, I have no real picture of what she was. She was a humorless, pulled inside herself, withdrawn, sad, um, kind of hangdog looking person at a love seminar. (laughs) Wow. I felt terrible for her. Do you think that being funny helps in relationships more than it hinders them? Do you find yourself hiding behind humor to avoid intimacy? I don't hide behind it. I love it. I'll tell you a funny thing right now. So the man I've been with for the last 20 years is in 12-step programs. And he was um, talking to somebody in his program about me. And they were talking about working through fighting and so forth and so on, which is what they do. And he said, well, if you think you have it bad, my wife is a humorous writer. She actually... uh, thinks of smart-ass remarks for a living. And this guy went, oh, dude, that's the worst. You're fucked. Oh, my God. (laughs) Which I thought was such a funny response to hearing. Yeah, that's the last thing you want. It would just seem really funny to me that, like, that's that's the reaction that somebody has to the fact that I'm a comedy writer, that whoever's around me is fucked. (laughs) (laughs) well i guess if you use them in your material but your partner is a musician he's a he's a musician right yeah that's a long partnership so what's the secret to your your relationship now what would you what would you tell us the thing i've always really loved about him is um he's very self-analytical and he's growth oriented i think that's the key to a relationship is somebody who reconsiders their own behavior pretty regularly Oh. But do you have to do that also? It's good. Yeah, when it's just no, the you other have to do it too. It. Oh, Jeez, yeah, I don't know about that. 
But I'm, you know, as a writer, that's what you do for a living pretty much is analyze yourself in the form of other characters, in the form of yourself, whatever. But you have to have somebody else who thinks that life is um, a thing you move through and consider in terms of moments that they don't just stick to one set of objectives and stay with it and you can't talk to them about anything. You just find yourself in a whirlpool where nothing can ever move forward. And you often, because I'm a big believer in ther- therapy and also psychotherapy, you know, you find out that the people you're attracted to, like the idea of love at first sight, in my opinion, I don't know if this has been validated. It's a thing my sh- one of my shrinks explained to me is called repetition compulsion, where you, uh, you're connecting to the problem you had with the most problematic parent, and then you're back in it trying to solve it again with a new paradigm right so if that's what love is there you've got the problematic parent with you again if nobody's moving forward you're screwed it's people you know people who've been with multiple alcoholics or oh yeah well if you're you're, it feels familiar it may feel painful and negative but it's familiar yeah and familiarity sometimes is what seems like love to people right it is a comfort that and the other big thing that what the mistake women make is people women think chemistry has got something to do with love well men think that too why is just women i think men are even no men that. men like chemistry but they don't think it connects to love they just think you got chemistry oh they can minute. compartmentalize that's true yes, yeah right. women think yeah. you know there's that song it's in his kiss boy is that a lie it's not in i mean if, if you don't have chemistry with somebody you can't have a long love relationship with him but you can have chemistry with someone you don't even like that's true that's one of the horrifying things you find out when you're a ne'er-do-well so i guess my final question and i it gets back to this idea of the younger self the older self talking to the younger self and it's something i think all the time i wish i could go back and talk sense to my younger self but it's much less frequent that i think about a self currently older than me, my future self coming back and talking to my present self. Like that hardly ever comes to mind. Yeah. But then I think it's an interesting sort of practice. So like if your older self could come, say like a 10 or 20 years older self could come and talk to you now. Yeah. What do you even imagine that conversation going like? Right off the bat, the thing that has occurred to me through all of it is just stop evaluating your looks you always look better in the present than you're going to look in the future maybe or maybe not you know like just accept how you look I look back on periods of my life where I was I'm so fat I'm so ugly I'm so this I'm that. yes and you at one point you say to the younger self don't worry there's going to be a body positivity movement in about 50 years yeah <laughs> yeah yeah well they're not, and I don't know any women who think they look okay and it's um including amazingly gorgeous women. So, and I look back on myself in my 20s when I was really devoted to saying how I was fat and awful and blah, blah, blah. And I look cute. You know, I look just I fine. It's, it's shock. You look at pictures of yourself and like, what was I thinking? Yeah, no, just knock it off. Just knock yeah. it off. Somebody's got a book out that I haven't read yet, but I've been meaning to read. It's got the world's greatest book title. I'll give it a plug right now. On Earth, We're All Beautiful for a Short Period of Time. Do you know that book? No. It's the greatest title <laughs> ever. <laughs> it's true, too. You just just stop it. We, we need to just stop evaluating. I hate this whole idea of hot. 
too, you know, like hot. She's as a validation point, like you're more validated if you're looking hot. Screw that, you know. Do you still keep diaries? My last question. Have you kept diaries all this time? I kept them until about a year and a half ago when I started, or two years ago, when I started doing this book, I stopped. It was just, I was too consumed with this. When And the last couple years, when I started doing this book, I learned something really interesting, which is if you keep a diary as a graphic document, I actually learned this from taking a workshop by from Linda Berry, who I adore. Yes. And worship. That if you keep a, a diary of drawings, and they don't even have to be well drawn, of something, just pick one thing that happened during the day. It brings back the day way more vividly than if you're going, and you know what he said to me, and then I said, and then he said, and yes. then I, you know, that stuff is no fun to read, and it's nightmarish, whereas I have about five years worth of diaries that are just um, me doing an exchange with somebody at Trader Joe's. Or, mm-hmm. you know, just something, uh, a snatch of actually a thing that happened that day. And, and those are really fun to look at, including a couple of times I was hospitalized. I, I kept it every day in the hospital, a picture of the nurse and stuff. And it's you forget all of that. It's really a way more interesting kind of diary to keep. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think this book, it's not only very, very funny, it's really poignant. It's there's a very wide range of emotional experience to take away from it. So, well, thank you. I really appreciate that. Thank you for writing it. And um, I love the hippo. The hippocampus is <laughs> that will stay in my hippocampus. Yeah. No, and this occurred to me when I saw the word hippocampus. Why haven't I never thought before that it's a hippo? That was my interview with Meryl Marco. Meryl was recently awarded the Patty Chayefsky Laurel Award for Television Writing Achievement. Her new book, We Saw Scenery, The Early Diaries of Meryl Marco, is just out from Algonquin Books. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. If you are enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, preferably positive ones. You can also support the podcast by joining the Patreon page at patreon.com slash theunspeakable. Coming up this week, Thursday, October 29th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, will be another live stream Q&A in the Functional Adults Conversing series. This one featuring Sasha Ayad, who was a guest back in August and who works with young people dealing with issues of gender dysphoria. If you're at all interested in the subject or are curious why there's been a dramatic surge in kids and teens announcing trans identities, please join us. It's free to mid and high level Patreon subscribers and a ticketed event for the public. You can find out more on the website, theunspeakablepodcast.com, or follow me or the podcast on social media, not Instagram yet. Meanwhile, thanks for joining me. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about up to 25% off grocery store prices. Oh, really? What's wrong with paying full price, huh? No, sir. I would not join BJ's Wholesale Club. Let's agree to disagree, Frank. Say you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card. Join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. Offer valid for a limited time. Are you in excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction? 
The sleepless nights, the constant worry, and the feelings of isolation. Recovery Centers of America wants you to know you're not alone. Addiction destroys families. But if you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your loved one can begin to recover, and so can your whole family. At Recovery Centers of America at Monroeville, your loved one will be treated with compassion and dignity by expert addiction professionals while recovering in a world-class facility. Family Support Services will give you knowledge, connection, and community so that you can begin to heal and recover as well. Call 1-888-RECOVERY today. Recovery Centers of America accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services at no cost. Patients are admitted 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now.